A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. We are recording this on November 16th, 2021. Our guest today is Luis Bolaños, a former homicide detective with more than 30 years of law enforcement experience. Luis now runs his own private investigation firm called Get Bit, and you do so much volunteer and pro bono work for survivors of crime. You are a personal friend and you are a friend of the show. Luis, we're so thrilled you're with us today. Happy to be here, Anna. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really, really interested in this case on so many levels, but I'm so glad to be part of the show. And, and I'm really glad that you're here because I reached out to Lewis a year ago about this case. And I said, Lewis, I need your help on a case that I covered 30 years ago. And this entire program is a call to action. Today, I'm turning the tables. I'm asking all of you for help. If we can harness the energy that was used to help solve the Gabby Petito case, if we could just use a fraction of that to help find out what happened to this 11-year-old boy called Mark Heimbaugh. I would be eternally grateful, but really, it is his mother, his father, his brother, his family, the people of this small town in South Jersey who have been waiting 30 years for answers. And the most important thing is his mother, Maureen. So it was 30 years ago on November 25th of 1991, he disappeared on the Monday before Thanksgiving. Time and law enforcement, they have both failed to figure out what happened to a little redheaded boy with freckles on his nose. His name is Mark Heimbaugh. Mark was 11 years old when he was abducted from this really small town called Del Haven. It is in South Jersey as, as, as you're heading down to Cape May to the very tip of New Jersey. At the time, there were only like a thousand residents and it, it was initially, it was treated like a missing child case, right, Lewis? And that's where you lose a lot of momentum. Oh, he, because he had just taken off to see a fire. There was a brush fire down the street. He said to his mom, I want to go see the fire. And his mom said, okay. And so everyone thought that when he didn't come home that night for dinner, something had happened that maybe he was still missing, was at a friend's house, maybe, you know, got caught in the marsh all that kind of stuff, Lewis. The, yeah. Those are always the initial feelings on a case like this. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about the response for a missing child. Um, so you were talking 30 years ago, and unfortunately, these responses at times, even today, aren't giving the attention that they deserve sometimes for whatever reason, for a variety of reasons. Um, but it has become such an issue nationally on how to handle a response to a missing person and of course, the missing child just escalates it that I think uh, departments here in California specifically, uh, they came out with a mandate about uh, 15, 18 years ago uh, through the Department of Justice. And I think this is consistent now nationally. But I want to read a little bit to you. This I pulled this off the Department of Justice here in California's site today. And they've added a few things here and there over the years, but it's pretty consistent. And there's a reason why they had to come up, not just with this mandate, but they made it part of post-training, 
Peace Officer Standard Training. So it means when you go to the academy, this is a mandated course in the academy and also through an officer's training phase. You have to learn this and your supervisors have to sign this off. Why? Because it's been a problem historically. And I just put it out, I'm just gonna read a paragraph here, but this is titled Message to Responding Officers Missing Person Investigations. And about midway through, it talks about officers should assume the missing person is in immediate danger or at risk until the facts contradict the assumption. It hasn't been like that always, Anna. They had to- But you know what? I, I can say, Lewis, mm -hmm. I can say in this case, the response was huge and immediate because I was there. I was there. I was a young reporter based in South Jersey. I worked for WPVI Action News in, in, in Philadelphia. And I can tell you there were canine units out that night that finally when the um, Coast Guard could fly their helicopters, it was the Coast Guard that lent the, the air support. There were so many people who had volunteered to, to get out there that night, it was cold. I'll never forget how cold it was that night. Again, it's the week of Thanksgiving. You're by the ocean, it's windy. And this little boy with some special needs is missing. So, but I will grant you this, Lewis, again, that the response was huge, right? The response was huge, but again, it was treated as a missing persons, right? As a child who wandered off, as opposed to a child who now authorities believe was abducted. He was kidnapped. Right. And I think that's the spirit behind this mandate here, because it goes on to say officers and investigating approaching the initial investigation in a less than serious manner. And I get the difference. There is a time in an investigation where it turns all of a sudden. Could be in the first few minutes or the first few days from just a missing person to expecting the worst. And this is indicating that asking, mandating that you start off expecting the worst and backtrack from there. Yeah, they put a lot of resources in it, but a period of time went by uh, where it didn't click. It just didn't click. And I can't imagine for you as an investigative reporter, Anna, how it feels 30 years later to relive this. There's so much footage on this and so much coverage uh, on social media where you can read as to your involvement and, and back in the day and, 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 and how you take this with you for 30 years. Uh, investigative reporters, peace officers, we all have cases, cold cases specifically, that were never solved that you carry with you for the rest of your life. Um, yeah. This one is resurfacing again. But I, yeah. I know it's personal for you. I, I know that. It is. Um, it has haunted me. I was really young back then, and I, I wish I knew everything that I know now and had the skill set that I have now. I think I would have been such a better reporter on this, you know, but I was who I was. I was a young 20 year old, you know, um, but I was dogged without question. And yes, this has always haunted me because um, I think everyone who's ever worked this case, and I've stayed in touch with people over the years, that anyone who's ever worked this case has always felt that they have failed the mother. I always, and I'm going to say that to Maureen because Maureen Heimbaugh is going to come on in a few minutes. We're going to talk to her. We're going to talk to Rich McHale, who um, is a retired officer from the Middle Township Police Department that was the lead investigator on this. And he has dedicated the last 10 years of his life or more to working on this case on his free time to help Maureen. Mm. Um, yeah, I think when we're going to show you some historical video 
from the time and you're going to see Maureen. And then when Maureen comes on, it's like, no time has passed. She's the same, you know, and still hopeful and waiting. She still lives in the same house, the same house. I sat on that couch and interviewed her and she's still there hoping someday, you know, that Mark will come back. And now we're coming up on the 30th anniversary, which is why I really, this is why I'm asking everyone, please help us, help us get this story out there. Remind everyone, because this is different from other cases. We don't have surveillance video. It was 30 years ago. We don't even have DNA. We're going to talk about how we're going to try and get some, but there's nothing. There's like no forensic evidence in this case. And so that's why it really needs the help of people who were there at the time, or maybe someone who heard or saw something. So as I was saying, Lewis, at the time it was missing persons, right? As a missing child. And then as the hours and the days passed, it became clear that this was far more of a dangerous situation. And then the FBI and the New Jersey state police were all brought in to investigate. It was a huge story. It was everywhere. Not only was it everywhere on television. Remember, there was no internet back then. I, there was, you know, some people had cell phones. We had satellite phones in the news trucks. You know, that's how we got stuff done. But his photo, I mean, flyers were everywhere. Posters were everywhere. There were traffic stops everywhere to get Mark's photo out there. So I want to show you what the news coverage was like at that time. We're going to play a clip now. Not located the boy. He was last seen Monday afternoon near a brush fire. Rescue workers, rescue workers using bloodhounds have found one of his sneakers and some footprints on Sunray Beach. Officials continue to investigate the possibility Mark could have been abducted from that area. They continue to question his parents. Lewis, it was massive. It was, it was, a, it was a massive case. And it's so jarring, like to see yourself 30 years ago and to realize you're still reporting a story that has barely moved from where it was 30 years ago. Okay, so Lewis and I are gonna go over the, the basic details of this case. Then we're gonna bring on Mark's mother, Maureen Heimbaugh, and then we're gonna bring on Rich McHale, who's working on a book, by the way, on this, which will be out soon, and we're gonna talk about that as well. And then I wanna talk about some amazing news that we're gonna share about DNA. So those of you who are regular followers of this program know that Othram Labs, which is that DNA lab out of Texas, that does extraordinary work with degraded DNA. They are the lab you turn to when no one else can help you. And if you follow cold cases, Practically every week, Othram Lab is associated with clearing a case, solving a case that is old and like had nothing going for it. And I made a personal plea to the CEO of Othram Labs. And so we're going to talk about that as well. So let's get into the basic facts, Lewis. And then I want to hear your perspective on this, because again, I turned to you a year ago. I know you've had access to a lot of reports, some of which, much of which we can't make public. Mark disappears after going to see a nearby marsh or brush fire, and he had the permission of his mom. His mom goes to run some errands. Now, because of the fire, traffic has been rerouted in the area, and it takes Maureen an extra amount of time to get home because there are all these detours. As a result of that, people are not driving their normal patterns. She's late getting back. She gets home, Mark's not there. She's calling all of Mark's friends. Remember, you had to call the house back then. Calls the friends, nobody's seen Mark. Then she gets nervous. Now it's dark. 
she calls the police. And that's when it's a full on missing child investigation. At 9.30 that night, a sneaker is found on the beach nearby the house. Now it's a high top sneaker of, it was very popular at that time. It was made by LA Gear. We have a picture of it. We're gonna put it up. There was only one sneaker found. And here's what's interesting. We also have photos of Mark wearing a pair just like that. Mark had broken his foot or ankle. His mom's gonna explain all this. And so he was wearing his older brother's LA Gear sneakers because his foot had come out of the cast. And so that's why everyone was so aware of what he was wearing. But it also makes you think, Lewis, was that sneaker there because someone tried to yank Mark off the beach and in the struggle, the sneaker fell off? Or did he, because his foot was bothering him, take the sneaker off? Right. Right. I'm still confused on that because a lot of stuff that I've read, I, I, and I'm going to ask Rich this, uh, but I, I, I'm not convinced that the sneaker was the only thing found. I, I don't know if there were shoe impressions left from that sneaker or bare feet impressions. Uh, if, if there were, they would indicate a direction of travel. I don't know if that's going toward the fire or coming home. or I, So that's still a little foggy, but I think we can answer that during this episode. Yeah, a lot of questions about that. There's controversy about the sneaker. You know, to this day, I talked to, oh, just so you know, we're going to have the one of the detectives from the cold case unit from the Cape May prosecutor's office will be joining us later in the program also to answer some questions and tell us where they are in the case. One of the things that authorities are still questioning to this day is, was it Mark's sneaker? Maureen is convinced that it is. Frankly, I look at the photos and I'm like, yeah, hello. Uh, I mean, I think so. But here's, and you'll see this also in the video. You even see it in my report from 30 years ago everyone and their brother and their mother and their sister, everybody touched that sneaker. Right. Everyone touched that sneaker. We didn't have DNA back then. Yeah, not to this level. But that sneaker wasn't just identified by Maureen, correct? Also by the older brother, Mark's older brother, yep. Matt, mm -hmm. who gave it to Mark as a hand-me-down. Right, yes. So yeah, They're convinced that, that it is. It, it sure seems like it is. You have to assume it is. Okay, so now we've got that. That We still have that. That is still in custody. And, and we'll talk a little bit about how that ended up at the FBI and what, if anything, the FBI was able to find. Remember, DNA technology has changed significantly every few years. So, and this is that old. So now we have witness reports that are coming in. So the sneaker's been found. I'm getting you back to real time on that night. The sneaker's been found. Witness reports are coming in. And remember, no surveillance cameras in the area. So uh, it's believed that Mark may have been seen with a little girl in a nearby park. We're going to put up a sketch of that little girl. There's a sketch that, that is still being used to this day that was provided by eyewitnesses at the time. She had blonde hair, was wearing a blue jacket. She's never been identified. And here's why that's suspicious. This is a small town. Everybody knows each other. So a little blonde girl just doesn't appear out of nowhere without somebody knowing. Yeah, it's concerning on a few different levels, not just because it's a small town and you would think someone would recognize the sketch that was put out, but if it was somebody who was felt comfortable enough to walk with Mark and lived in that community and knew Mark, that they would have stepped forward and said, I was the one. 
it's that small where that person no doubt would have had that information or the, the, the child's parents and yet nothing came out and concerning was right. a kid from out of town somebody he just met for the first time and i know your suspicion has always been that she was used as a lure Very to get awesome. mark closer to the abductor yeah Oh my goodness. All right. Then there are sketches of two men who were seen talking to Mark around the time of the abduction. I've got a little confusion as to some of them were before and after, and we're going to get clarity on that, but we're putting these sketches up. I want you to look at the sketches and we're going to make everything available online because we really want everyone to share this case, help us break this case wide open. So what's interesting is that over the next three decades, there were several strong leads that at the time, you know, there were a lot of search warrants and interrogations, including two persons of interest who were known child sex abusers. Okay. So I want you to look at these sketches because one of the sketches, surprisingly, and I never put a lot of value in sketches, but when later on in the program, when we put that sketch up against a mugshot, I want all of you to tell me what you see. Okay. I want you to tell me what you see. Okay. And I have to tell you, I'm the, I'm the exact opposite. I put a ton of value in sketches. Really? Yeah. It, it, it's amazing how incredible these sketch artists are. Of course, now it's all done uh, with computer programs. But in my experience, they've been extremely accurate. S scary how accurate they can be. But Interesting. Okay. Well, yeah. you know, um, that will be interesting. So we are... We are going to bring on uh, Mark's mother, Maureen, and Rich. But before we do that, I just want to play a little bit of an interview that I did with Maureen at the time. From his neighborhood in Cape May County, New Jersey, this afternoon, police were back out looking for clues. Anna Garcia reports. No, I heard about it. Do you know about this kid at all? Yeah, I don't know anything about him. Police in Middle Township were stopping motorists on Bayshore Avenue this afternoon at approximately the same time and at the same place that 11-year-old Mark Heimbaugh was last seen. So far, the only thing police have turned up is Mark's sneaker and some footprints on Sunray Beach. I just have that faith that that um, God is taking care of him. You know, no matter where he is, and I just hope that that they do find him. The FBI is now involved in this investigation. Middle Township police are hoping that the FBI's expertise with cases like this will help them find Mark Heimbaugh. So now I want to introduce Maureen Heimbaugh and Rich McHale. And as I described earlier, Maureen... Um, I haven't seen you in a really long time. It's good to see you. I know. I didn't even recognize you. Oh, oh my God. You still have the cute little mm -hmm. nose like you always did. <laughs> Maureen, um, we, just, we just played a clip from um, 1991 when I was in your living room interviewing you. And um, you okay. said that you had faith in God, that God was going to take care of Mark no matter what. And of course, this was early on early on this in his disappearance it was the week of thanksgiving um right maureen how have you managed all these years i don't know i don't know i think i just i think i stay positive because i um because i look for the positive and the good 
and um because i've been through an awful lot even through these years i've been through a lot of interviews a lot of um you know magazine interviews television interviews and they've all been hard but the one thing i want to say i'm sitting here and i can see straight out my front bay window, which my living room pretty much is the same as you remember it, but I can remember it like it was yesterday. I can remember seeing Mark. I can remember that he, I believe, asked to go see the fire in the interim. My neighbor asked me to take her to pick up her car. So what I did is I um, came out of the house but I didn't get in the car yet. I looked to the right and I saw Mark walking down the street and he was coming towards me. So I walked towards him up to my mother's house next door. And I said to him, Mark, I said, I'm just gonna take Anne to pick up her car. And his last words were, okay, mom. He was positive, happy, not at all in any bad way that they would have thought that day that he would run away or anything like that. He was very cheery, happy, just the way he always is. So that's the last way I remember him. And I can see him like it was yesterday. I can feel him. I just, just wish he had gone with me that day. But he didn't. He usually did go everywhere with me, but he didn't because of the curiousness of the fire. So, okay. So enough of that. That just makes me cry. <laughs> I'm sorry, Maureen. Uh, I, I said at the beginning of the program before you and Rich came on, I, I said to Lewis, who's a dear friend of mine, and he's a private investigator, homicide detective. He's has a big heart. And I just said, I feel um, that all of us, that we have failed you, that whether we were reporters or we were investigators. I feel the fact that we're sitting here 30 years later that we failed you. I don't know what I could have done differently, but I feel so bad. No, because they always say, there's always that saying that it could be right in front of us. It could be someone on this street. It could have been something that happened close to home. Um, I don't blame anybody, you know. I have even been through people in prison who said they did it. There was two of them on two different occasions. And they took me in and said, well, they'll confess if you don't do the death penalty, of course. So I'd said, fine. But that they didn't really come forward. So, I mean, um, that kind of thing. If Even if I've seen shows like that, not that I forgive the person, but I couldn't do, I wouldn't be like that I want to kill them or harm them or anything. I just want the justice and I want the answer. You know, I want the closure. So not that this, I'm doing this for you today. It's, you know, every Thanksgiving is difficult. Um, and I love, it's one of my favorite holidays. I love Thanksgiving because it's all about family. And Mark would love, he, he would like that I'm doing this, that I'm moving forward. And that even if I get an answer, no matter what it is, whether he's not with me and they found him and it's terrible, I could deal with it. 
And even if he came home and didn't know me and he was a different person, I could deal with that too. I've told myself all those things, but in my heart, there's a real strong part of me that believes he's up there in heaven because I've told many of people and I'll say it again. I feel him all around me all the time. It's almost like when I'm driving and I have some balance problem, the dizziness, I even almost fell asleep coming home from work one day and jolted. And I feel like he's taking care of me. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I try to tell myself that he's taking care of me, maybe not from heaven, but spiritually, if he's out there, he's connecting with me. That's kind of my hope, you know, because I have to believe like J.C. Dugard, I keep thinking of that story so much. And I so much want that to be my story. I know. I know. I I don't know how every Thanksgiving I think of you and it's... um, it, it makes me so sad. And I'm, and, and the only reason I'm asking you to relive it today with us is because mm-hmm. I feel really strongly that because there is so little evidence because it was 30 years ago, we didn't have surveillance videos. We didn't have GPS on phones. We, we didn't have really cell phones. You know, we, the, the DNA technology was not even, was non-existent. So because of that, I, I want to do a call to action and I'm asking everyone to share this story because somebody knows something, right? Somebody knows something. And, and that's the only reason I'm, I'm asking you to relive this horrible moment because, you know, I don't know who could possibly listen to you, Maureen, and not want to help. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't, I, you'd have too cold a heart. So speaking of really true, wonderful hearts, I want to bring in Rich. Rich who's retired out of um, the Middle Township Police Department. Rich, you didn't, you're too young. (laughs) You're too young to have worked this case 30 years ago, but you were very committed to it. And you've been a huge, huge support to Maureen. Um, Thank you, Anna. And uh, although I may look young, the rings around the trunk uh, are there because I was on the police department at that time. I was a young patrolman. I had about three years on, and I was not directly involved uh, at that time. I was just just uh, doing the uh, patrol uh, assignment, if you will, and we had rotating shifts. I know we worked a week on each shift and then rotated around, and uh, I often try to think back to those times, and when I'm replaying the video of you interviewing Maureen in her living room, I mean, I, I remember those uh, those things like it was yesterday, um, and I personally didn't get involved in the investigative effort until around 1996 when I first went into detectives. So Maureen has set the day, right? She she set the the day. So I, I want to get to the sneaker because I think that that's a very important part of this. So Rich, from your perspective, there's been a lot of debate: is it or is it not Mark's sneaker? Well, Maureen can tell you, and uh, Mark's older brother, Matthew, can tell you that it is the sneaker that Mark had because it was they were originally Matthew's pair of sneakers that were hand-me-downs to Mark. And one of the reasons is because of the fractured foot he, had re- he was recovering from, he was no longer in the boot cast, but the larger size was more comfortable for Mark to wear. So without a doubt, they were they were his they were sneakers that he was wearing they originally were mats but yes they were mark sneakers 
Maureen, when they brought you that sneaker, what did you think? Um, they didn't find it till late, 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 late that night. And um, I had hope, you know, because that was his sneaker. And um, so they didn't, they searched for a while, but then they did stop the search that night because it got very, very late. And that upset me, but then I wasn't upset because all the volunteer firemen continued to search, all the people continued to search all night. So um, of course it was um, a Monday and Thursday was Thanksgiving. So um, I remember those days coming up to Thanksgiving. Um, and I do know it was his sneaker, but what happened is he had taken his good school sneakers off because he wanted to he wanted to go up on the tower out back to look at the fire at first. He asked permission for that. And he was trying to see the fire. So he put older shoes on his old sneakers. And um, so that, that sneaker was found much, much later that night. And there was a lot of people on the bay earlier who didn't bring it back. So I know it was, you know, to, in, in my heart, I know it was placed there to keep you know, the investigative people looking, that that's my feeling. So you think that you don't think that that sneaker fell off as Mark was being abducted. Do you think that sneaker was placed there as a diversionary yes. tactic? Yes, because if it had fallen off, if he was running, um, someone would have seen it sooner because there were people that went up to the beach, you know? And um, no, there was that, theory too that he ran away from other kids saying that he set the fire and what have you but no I think it was placed there because it wasn't I don't know exactly where it was placed because I remember them saying that they didn't mark it as a crime scene at the top which they should have and they mm. didn't they just brought it back to me to ask me was this marked sneaker and it was uh. and then they tried to tell me it wasn't a sneaker and you don't tell the mother of a little boy that has sneakers that look like that, but it's not his sneaker. It was his sneaker. So yes, it was. I believe you, Maureen. I believe you. Mm -hmm. I really do with all my heart because okay. um, I, you not, you'll get no pushback here. The cops mm -hmm. are still making some argument that maybe it's not. And I think we might be able to definitively get to the bottom of it. I, I don't know if Rich has been able to share with you, but um in the, I've been talking to Rich for the last year, preparing for this um, to, to make as big a push as we could uh, so everyone could hear this story. And we reached out to Othram Labs that's based out of Texas. And they, they deal with what's called degraded DNA where they have only bits and pieces and they can't always get the full DNA of the individual. And so I put them together with the cold case folks over at the um, Cape May prosecutor's office, and they're all talking to each other and they're, and we're going to have uh, detective uh, Craddock come on later, but he says he's, he's going to send the sneakers in the process of talking to Othram to figure out how to get the sneaker over to them to get it tested, to definitively not only find out that they, cause they'll be able to find Mark's DNA, but also if there's anybody else's DNA, even though we know everybody touched this sneaker. Um, and, I, and I think that's a little bit of, of news because 
these folks at Authorm, I've seen them work miracles, Maureen. I'm not promising you one, but I got to tell you, I have twisted the, the arm of the CEO every time I see him, I talk to him. I'm like, you got to, you just got to look at this case. So um, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful, right? I'm hopeful. Yes. And if I could uh, just jump in there for a second. Um, yeah. First of all, I'm a retired Middle Township police officer, and, and I don't speak for the current investigation or the prosecutor's office. I, I certainly don't. Uh, I don't represent them, and they wouldn't want me to either. Uh, I'm not active in the case. However, I do speak from my experiences in the case and, and interviewing everyone, including Maureen. And um, I was just replaying, in preparation for this podcast, I was just replaying an audio tape of an interview I did with uh Fire Chief Dave Zeiss of Green Creek Fire and uh, Paul Fritsch, who was, I believe he was his assistant at the time. And we were in the garage of the firehouse. This is in 2008. And they're recant, recalling the, de the night of the fire. And they remember vit so vividly how cold it was on that particular night. Bitter cold. And now you got to remember, firemen are wearing uh, their their fallout gear, heavy coats, and the the neck gaiters, so they're pretty bundled up, and they were still cold. And when they came upon the sneaker, and it wasn't just the firemen; it was the police, it was the volunteers. We we meaning the the search people, not me specifically, but uh, we the police and and firemen and searchers were looking for a lost little boy, maybe fell in a sinkhole. And the firemen and the, and the fire chief said when they came across the sneaker, they were kind of somewhat elated because they were thinking they were going to go a few more feet and maybe in the dunes and find Mark and get the hell off the beach were his words. Like they were that cold. And uh, that's all they were thinking of. They uh, Even Skip Peak, the sergeant who handled the, uh, the initial call, a veteran police officer, um, at first they were looking for a lost little boy and uh, Mark was taking some medication. Uh, he wasn't handicapped. He wasn't physically or mentally incapable of taking care of himself. Maureen will tell you, uh, he, he fashioned himself as MacGyver, a MacGyver type kid. He climbed on the, on the roof of his house to look at the fire. That, I, I couldn't do that. That's how um, uh, physically capable he was. And all of his friends through the years that I've, I've interviewed will tell me, tell you, Mark knew that area. So any, any uh, water hazards, he would have been aware of that. Uh, but the one point, the, the initial point I started to make here is that it was so cold that night and searchers were looking for a lost uh, little boy or runaway boy and they, and they were gonna find him and get off the beach and get off the search. And that's not the way this case, you know. Well, 30 years later. We're still <laughs> here, right? That's yeah. not where we are. And you know, Lewis, uh, this Maureen uh, pointed out something huge here that where the sneaker was found on the beach, no one ever taped it off as a crime scene. It was, it just wasn't Lewis. And we all know now that's not great. What was the mentality at that time from the law enforcement and the rescuers that, and the first responders that found the sneaker, were they still in search mode or were they starting to click and we have a potential crime here? Uh, it, it was a different time. 30 years ago, these things were handled differently. Uh, it's amazing. Maureen, I just have to say, I, I agree with Ann 100%. What I just heard you say, I don't know how in the world anybody could hear those words and not want to do everything they can to possibly help. Even 30, year, 30 years later, 
that you are an amazing person. That, that was just very, very powerful and really resonated with me as I know as it does with Anna. Um, and I know it does with Rich. He's been hearing your words for a while and I, I think that it's amazing. Yeah. It's rare to have somebody keep a case like this close to the chest and actually act on it over the years. Mm -hmm. And so I salute you, Rich, for that. I, I think- Thank you, thank you. you know, yeah, it, it's it, it's amazing and it states the type of person you are. Um, I, I have a question about the sneaker because well, I'm still a little foggy in this. When the sneaker was found, were there any shoe impressions or foot impressions found in the vicinity of that sneaker there, that were consistent with the size? There were. Um, and they were not, uh, it was uh, two, two sneaker impressions up to the sneaker. And then beyond that point, it was one barefoot impression, one shoe impression to a point where it becomes uh, where this it goes into the soft sand and indiscernible is what the what the wording in the report was. Um, what what they did at that time was uh, they used the canine dogs were searching a different area. They brought them to that area. They used the sneaker. No, actually, they used uh, personal um, uh, a teddy bear or something of Mark's as a scent article and then the dogs tracked his scent from that point to the next uh beach was uh next i'm sorry the next paved road roosevelt boulevard which was about almost a half mile north of that location and uh as if a vehicle were waiting because uh, the dog scent stops at the right at the when when you come off the beach right onto the street so the shoe impressions and the foot impressions were consistent with the size, even though they weren't specific and discernible? They, they were consistent, and it was as if somebody were walking. There was no sign of struggle there. Um, there was nothing else uh, to lead us to believe anything else had been going on. Um, our chief of police at the time, Raymond Saunders, who happened to be the first black chief uh, in Cayman County, um, was a big juvenile justice advocate, and he had an affinity for, uh, for I, I don't know where he learned it. He was an older guy when I came on the department, but he just, uh, he, his big thing was juvenile justice. He had just started the juvenile officer program, and Scott Webster, who, who becomes the main detective in this case, along with Fred Tiesenfitz, they were juvenile detectives. They were, they knew the neighborhood. They knew the kids in the neighborhood. And, um, so they were, they were called in to, uh, look for Mark. And again, it was, it was a lost or runaway boy. We weren't looking at an abduction. Oh, so we thought at the time. Right. So Rich, what's, what's your theory here? Because then, you know, we're showing all of the sketches um, the original sketches, the sketch of there are some witnesses who say um, that they saw Mark with a little blonde girl at the park. Do, we've never figured out who this blonde girl is, which I find really strange because everybody back then knew everybody. It's not that big of an area. So, Rich, you, what happened? What do you, you think know, happened? Louis, Louis uh, knows, knows this area that I'm about to talk about, and, and it's something that we were not looking at at the time. Again, this was a search for a lost or runaway little boy. And, and, and as a patrolman in 91, I remember distinctly getting a lot of calls of runaway kids. They had arguments with their parents. We'd find them under the house, in their bedroom. That was, very, that was a very common call. What was uncommon, in fact, it was unheard of, were, were of child abductions 
in K May County and Middle Township. We just we didn't have any. Right. So to to say that we didn't handle it properly from the beginning uh, is an understatement. And uh, Scott Webster, the first detective on the scene, will tell you, uh, you know, they did everything in within their power. They real they really have. Scott has a big heart to this day. He feels bad for Maureen and the family and wishes that he could bring closure. Uh, Fred Tiesenfitz, I just talked to him this week. You know, this case eats at all of us as investigators. Um, to, to answer your question, there were a lot of anomalies in this case, and there was a marsh fire going on at the time. But that's, you know, this is, this is a phragmite grass. Uh, it just doesn't ignite. It just doesn't catch fire. Somebody had to set that fire. The sneaker on the beach is, is strange. Um, Mark was last seen around four o'clock by the park guard walking with that little girl that you're talking about who's never been identified. Um, that is, um, I wanna say about a half a mile um, away from where the sneaker was. The sneaker was like in another direction from where Mark was at the park. It doesn't make sense that if he, if he was last seen at his house, you could maybe understand that he was then chased from his house onto the beach and that location of the sneaker. That that would make sense, more sense. But the opposite direction and at the park and, and you know, where he most likely was probably abducted from, it doesn't make sense that a sneaker is later found on the beach. With regards to the girl, um, the further that I dug into the follow-up in this case, not the, I wasn't an initial investigator, but the follow-up is that you have pedophiles, you have child molesters, and there's a grooming period where they um, lower the guard and, and uh, alarm of little kids to the point uh, where they trust them enough to talk to them or get close to them to where they can lure them into a vehicle. And the girl may have been a decoy to lure Mark into the vehicle. And the girl may not have been from this area, and it's why we've never been able to identify that girl. It is so frightening to think about that, and I'm sure it's very hard for you to hear this, Maureen. I know it's not the first time you've heard this theory, but it has to be very hard for you to hear it. But I, um, I, do, I do believe that can happen because I've watched many crime shows and things and have seen where they've you know, it's the little, the, the, the dogs missing theory, which all children now are trained not to pay attention to that, but there's also the just grabbing them and throwing them like they did with J.C. Dugard right in the back seat. you know, that quick, they can do it. And um, I don't think that Mark would go, he wouldn't go with just anyone because he was very, um, he was very cautious, you know, so I don't believe that he would go with, get in a car if somebody asked him directions, you know, he'd be cautious. So I do think he was taken, so. Maureen, and I- And setting the scene for that, um, the marsh fire was uh, created, although it wasn't a big fire, it wasn't a structure fire, created a lot of smoke. And Bayshore Road, the only road in and out of Delhaven and Lower Township had to be shut down for about a two hour period. And, and what that did was traffic was rerouted through Mark's neighborhood to essentially make a U-turn to go now go north on Bayshore Road to, to be rerouted around the fire. And part of that, Maureen, when she said she wanted to take her neighbor to the uh, gas station, 
she also was detoured and in a, a five, 10 minute drive now becomes a half hour, 45 minutes where she leaves Mark in the neighborhood, drives around the detour and then comes back. And that's when she returns to the area and he's not there. But in addition to that, all of that traffic is now flowing through the neighborhood. And uh, the way we were able to track Mark at four o'clock is before that, we have credible witnesses who see him on the beach walking towards the fire, uh, an, an older couple. They see him looking at the fire. They see him walking back in the direction of his house. Four teenagers at the time uh, are now walking from the street onto the beach to walk and go check out the fire themselves. And Mark, by this time, is coming off the beach back onto the street on Delaware Avenue. And uh, they confirm that they all see him. He's by himself. He's in a happy-go-lucky mood. They tease him about setting the fire, even though they know that he didn't. And they just joke about it and then go and then continue on. Mark continues in the direction of his house. And he's within a tenth of a mile. But he's close to his house. And um, a, a street before his house, there is a family, a credible witness family watching the fire from their car. They had driven over, over to that section. They see Mark after the teenagers see him and literally he's around the corner from his house. Before they lose sight of him, they also see a suspect vehicle, which is a, a gray or silver car. And there's a girl driving and a white male subject in the passenger seat where he's standing outside the car, he stands on the running board um, because now they're facing south and he has to talk over the hood of the car. And he, he says something to Mark as he's walking back to his house. And uh, there was something shady about him. Uh, the motherly instincts of the witness, the, the, uh, the two witnesses, the family they were watching the fire, the, the alarms go off in their head and they make a mental note of the vehicle and what the male person looked like. Um, a year later, the New Jersey State Police um, joined this case in mass and they reinvestigate the entire case. And, and one of the things they did was a sketch based off of what that family saw of that man looking over the hood of the car. Um, and from that, uh, you know, the, that's the most credible lead as far as suspects in this case of who we think may be involved with the abduction of Mark Heimball. Um, the uh, abduct, abduction st statistics are, are very interested in knowing that first contact point that can be confirmed or not confirmed of the, when the bad person sees the victim. Uh, and in this case, we believe that was that point where a male subjects talking over the hood of his car to Mark as he's walking by. Rich, Mark, there, Rich there are two sketches. Um, is this the sketch of the guy with the short hair or the long hair? Uh, this is the one with the longer hair with the glasses. Um, in the, in the, uh, before they came up with that sketch, some young kids, I want to say 10 year old boys um, on the opposite end of that barricade, not the barricade, the blockade for the fire, thought they saw suspicious subjects. And, and they're, the, they're the sketches that you're talking about. Uh, our investigators don't believe that um, they are um, credible suspects in this case. Uh, we can't rule them out, but uh, what we, strongly believe is that third sketch that you see with the gentleman with the glasses 
um, is, is most likely part of the crew that abducted Mark. Right. And that's the, that's the sketch that I said to everyone at the top of this program to take a really good look at, because we were going to talk about this, this sketch that you're talking about that I asked everyone to take a look at. And Lewis feels very strongly that sketches oftentimes are very helpful. Um, I, I, we're now going to get into the discussion of some strong leads that police have followed in this case. This is a very hard part of the conversation for everyone. I'm going to be as gentle as possible, but this is very, very graphic, um, the allegations that have been made here. So Rich, in 1993, which would have been two years after Mark's abduction, um, a male sex worker, a prostitute comes forward and says that he believes he's seen Mark Heimbaugh in a graphic, violent child pornography video. This former male prostitute, Thomas Cole, tells police and the media that his former client, who is now a convicted child sex offender, Thomas Buttcabbage Jr., had Mark shackled, handcuffed him with a ball gag in his mouth. He came forward because he believed that that was Mark. And the reason he believed it was Mark is because Mark's picture was everywhere at the time. We may not have had the internet, but his photo was everywhere. Rich, when we look at the sketch of that man hanging over the side of the car, talking to Mark, and we look at the mugshot for Thomas Buttcavage. What do you see? It's almost as if the uh, sketch artist was drawing the picture based off the mugshot. And before I go further, um, I want to put the caveat out there that uh, nobody has been criminally charged in this case. Correct. Um, there are no formal charges. There are persons of interest. Uh, we don't even use the term suspect. Uh, there were people where we came close or, or thought heavily that they were suspects at one time, and Bud Cabbage certainly fits that realm. But I want to say up front that neither he or anyone else has been criminally charged in, in this case, and I think that's important to say. It is very um, important. He was never he was never charged. He was questioned. There was a search warrant of his home. Uh, there was a polygraph done as well, and he failed right. that. So, Rich, what do you make of this, of this lead? Uh, you know, um, looking at the sketch, and that sketch was drawn before the Daniel Cole was his name, by the way, um, the, the prostitute. Before he came forward, the sketch was already completed. Um, so it isn't as if the sketch was trying, you know, they tried to make it look like his mugshot. That didn't happen at all. That that sketch was drawn months before uh, Buck Cabbage was arrested, and uh, the uh, the reason why he was arrested is during a search warrant. He was in possession of marijuana, and that that was the charge. Uh, unrelated again, unrelated to the Heimball case, but um, because he was in possession of controlled dangerous substances at the time, he was ch uh, charged, um, and and his photo was taken. And when you look at the fo his photograph, his mugshot, it's it's as if the sketch artist li literally drew his sketch based on the mugshot photo. To answer your question, Lewis, what do you make of this? 
Well, you know how I feel about sketches, right? They're an amazing tool. And the fact that there is an incredible consistency between the photograph and the actual sketch, that means something to me. And 30 years ago, I don't think the term person of interest existed. Right. He was a suspect. Um, And the sketch is a sketch of the suspect, not a person of interest. But it's just too close. I, you know, I don't believe in coincidences, but it certainly points in a direction, doesn't it? It does. One of the things that I always I've asked over and over again about this part of it, because it got a lot of media attention is, you know, what would have been the motivation for the sex worker to come forward? Police have said that they've never really been able. Obviously, he's never been charged. Buck Cavage has never been charged so that they were never able to find anything or corroborate anything that um, the, the witness said. So what do you do with that, Rich? Well, what the investigators did, and uh, we had some very skilled and talented people with the Philadelphia Police Department, the Delaware County District Attorney, uh, the New Jersey State Police, Haverford Township, uh, you know, veteran skilled missing persons uh, unit investigators. So, you know, the right people were on the job and what they tried to do, including our own Mill Township detectives, is, is try and place that person in the area at the time. And um, they just can't, you know, put Bud Cabbage here um, at that at that time. Um, what they were able to do is uh, he he had a uh, lover, Bud Cabbage had a male lover, and the lover had a roommate, and the roommate um, is from Cape May County, and uh, the roommate's father was in the barbershop quartet with uh, Mark Heimball's father. So we were able to make a very loose connection uh, with Buck Cabbage and Mark's father. Wow. Maureen, any opinions on that? Um, I'm aware of it. Um, and it's, it's possible, but I thought I had also heard that he, even though he wasn't placed here the day Mark disappeared, but he had um, been to that campground, which is close by off of 47. And um, he had frequented this area, but I don't know if that's true. Like people, others have thought they saw him. Daniel Cole. Daniel Cole said that in his uh, 2015 interview, TV interview with Ted Greenberg uh, from the news station um, down here, interviewed him. And uh, that's where Maureen is getting from that. I, 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 did, I didn't say Bud Cavage had never been here. I said we couldn't put him in this area at that time of year. He certainly had been to the Wildwood area, um, you know, over, over, over the years, as well as his uh, companions and friends lovers, whatever they are, were at the time, uh, they were not uh, strangers to the Cape May County area. We just can't place them here in November of 1991. Right. Rich, can I I ask you on the polygraph, uh, did he actually fail the polygraph or did the polygrapher determine it was inconclusive? Uh, Buck Cabbage uh, had told or uh, Bob Hover, one of our uh, state troopers on the case, 
that he fantasized about traveling up to 100 miles to find a uh, young kid to abduct, rape, and kill. And uh, he misunderstood the questioning at the time of the polygraph. And uh, in his, this is Buck Cabbage's reasoning. The what I'm told is that uh, he was thinking of the fantasy that he didn't actually commit a crime or commit the crime of driving, which is almost 100 miles from where he lived to Cape May County. Um, he says that it wasn't in relation to reality and abducting Mark and raping and killing him. It was in reference to his fantasy of wanting to do that. I will say that Thomas Bud Cabbage in 1998 was uh, unrelated to our case, investigated by the Pennsylvania State Police, arrested, charged, and convicted of multiple counts of deviant sexual behavior with three young male uh, victims. And he's in prison, right? He's in prison right now. He's in prison. Uh, I believe his uh, max date is 2035. Okay. And he has denied, as we've said, he's never been charged in Mark's disappearance, and he has denied any involvement whatsoever. He, he said he's made comments, offhand comments to friends through our interviews, but to the investigator, he said he did not abduct Mark. And his attorney uh, at the time and, and since then has said, that uh, he says that his client had nothing to do with the, with the abduction of Mark Einbaum. Wow. So that one made the news. It was very, very public. And then do you, Rich, do you recall, you must, I'm sure that you do, then in 2016, which would have been a few years later, this call, this bizarre call that was made to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, where this person claimed to be the son of a witness who saw what happened to Mark, but the the name and the way it was described the the caller said that um the the alleged witness was someone named gilbert patrick marie or murray depending on pronunciation did that ever go anywhere there were two calls one was to middle township police department and then the second one to uh the national center for missing and exploited kids and that was uh in, that lee was investigated up and down our first call was in 20 10 that's when it came into uh middle township and i i believe the second one was within a week or a month of that one so um we and i was still on the police department at the time i know i was i was part of looking into that what uh chief loosener did from middle township is in 2015 um we took the case down to the national center for missing and exploited kids and they reviewed it with their analysts, their experts in behavioral science and uh, the abduction of children. And as part of that, they renewed the uh, investigation into that call to try and uh, see if they can come up with anything. And uh, we broadcasted it in the Philadelphia area again. They, re they played the call on TV and uh, that's, that's what you're referring to. And Nothing, no other, no new leads came of that. That was a, a revenge type thing where they said um, the, it was a, it was a, the, a witness to a retired police officer's son who said that their father ran Mark over and buried him on the side of Bayshore Road, obviously the night of his disappearance. That area uh, has been searched 
by foot, by canine, by helicopter, and uh, nothing, no earth disturbance anywhere along there has been found. On top of that, we've never found a retired police officer from any department, let alone Philadelphia, with any similar name like that. So that's an unfounded lead to answer your question. So Rich, what's your hope here with Othram Labs and David Middleman, who's the CEO, who's you know offered to, to see if he has anything that he can help? What in a perfect world, uh, and given that this sneaker has been touched so many times, what are, what's your hope here? What do you think is the next step here? Well, you know, against all odds, a couple of things. The first would be that we could positively identify Mark's DNA. That's never been done. Uh, we use mitochondrial DNA, which is mom and dad uh, combination and the general markers, uh, which are pretty close to what Mark's DNA is, um, but it's not his exact DNA. And for me, there's been uh, victims found, you know, all over the country in, in a 30 year period where maybe uh, the body has not been identified because we do not have Mark's complete DNA profile. So that's one goal of being able to positively identify Mark's DNA uh, for any, any previous searches, any future searches, we can positively uh, identify Mark's DNA and say that is or that is a Mark Heimball. Um, and that goes for living as well as deceased. I mean, we may come across somebody who is, is alive and we can't confirm their, their identity. And that could be one way to do that. And then what is, do you have any hope? I mean, it, it's, it's a long shot, right? The, the author has said, this is a real long shot to find anyone else's DNA on there. But that was the sec second thing I was going to get to. Um, that's obviously probably the primary thing that, that you had even brought up before. Let's say that um, Tom Buckavage's DNA is on that sneaker. It, it should not be on there whatsoever. He doesn't know Mark Heimball, shouldn't have had any contact with him. His DNA should not be on that sneaker. And uh, if he's saying he had nothing to do with it, and if it is, uh, we can connect him to the case as well as other, Lewis doesn't like this term, person of interest, but I just, I don't have the authority to call anyone a suspect, you know, who hasn't been charged or about to be charged in our case anyway. Yeah. And, and there, are, there are other people that we've looked at that we don't rule out for one reason or another. And, and, and if their DNA is on there, like just in the case of Buck Cabbage, it shouldn't be at all. And we can link them to the case. Right, right. I get it. And the reason we can't name anyone else is because this is the only one that's been named that was made public. He denied it. And so we have to be very careful. We can't just be accusing people. Um, when is the last time that anything was tested in regard to this case? I know stuff was sent to the FBI. But that was a long time ago, right, Rich? Uh, this is something that uh, Major Craddock can probably answer better than me, because first of all, I retired at the end of 2010. And I've kept close to the investigators, but I don't know the day-to-day -day workings. You know, my, my information is the most recent stuff. I believe 2000 and then 2007, there was another inquiry. Um, and it's any, any DNA or any blood or any samples are sent to the FBI lab to compare. And again, this is where 
Mark's complete DNA profile would be helpful in comparing with, with other samples of what we have. If, if it can be linked to any evidence we have collected through other searches that we've done in this case, that would really, the, the, your lab being able to help us there would be tremendous. Yeah, uh, I don't know if I answered your question. Or you not. did. No, you absolutely did. And I will. I will ask um, the detective, Detective Craddock, when he comes on in just a few minutes. So Maureen, um, like all moms, I'm sure you held on to Mark's baby teeth and you you must have other things that would have his DNA. I do. They, you talked about the DNA as far as blood and all. I remember that was very strange that they couldn't get it when he did have blood work, but they couldn't seemed to get DNA from a hospital when he was in a hospital at one point. But as far as saving things, yeah, I remember them wanting me to find the little, I had some red hair, like his haircut, or I did have baby teeth, but I didn't know if they were Matthews or Marks. And then of course I have his medicine that he was taking that week. And not that he touched that, but I did putting it in there, but I still have that medicine that's just starting to finally the one of them disintegrate a little bit because it's 30 years old. Oh he took God. one pill in the morning and he was supposed to take two at night. And the only pill missing because he disappeared on a Monday was the Monday morning pill. And I still have those pills because if he comes home, I want to be able to say, look what I saved, but you can't have them now, <laughs> you know, but I did save them. Just, I don't know why, but you know, I have a few things is um, the, um, the troll doll he gave me and the little uh, gizmo that he loved that movie, you know? So anyway, a few things. Yes. I have, okay. but any DNA things, I don't know. Uh, well, Anna, in reference, in reference to that, Maureen has given the investigators, she's given it to me that I, I forwarded to. Uh, she had hair from his first haircut saved in an envelope. Um, she's given me teddy bears of his other uh, other items of his that I forwarded and they have uh, tested like the hair. It, it didn't go down to the root. So they weren't able to get Mark's DNA from that from his although it was his hair and it was untouched. It wasn't down to the root, which would contain his DNA. So that's things that Maureen has given us things to send to the lab and uh that's why we haven't been able to get a dna profile from them uh just just not a complete um sample if you will to get mark's complete profile oh my goodness maureen um we're gonna move on to um the middle township police and specifically the prosecutor's office detective craddock to get an update from him as this anniversary looms um maureen i just want to thank you so much um I'm sorry that we put you through this again today. Okay. Um, thank you for helping and, and we're going to do everything we can and let's see if we can jog everybody's memory. Um, you know, it's all like we've always been told, even Matthew said um, he learned that when he went to see um, with his father, who was it, that um, he's a big advocate of finding John children. Walsh. John um, Walsh. Yeah. yeah, he said you have to keep their picture out there, you know, and the story, just like you're doing this, the farther it goes, even if it's in another state, you never know if there's somebody there, even if the person who took Mark is no longer alive, somebody might know something, you know, family member in another state, another country, whatever, 
So I appreciate everything that you're doing and especially what Rich is doing because um, we're determined that we're gonna get closure and hopefully it'll be this year, you know? Yeah, let's work on that. Let's really all yes. work on that. And you, uh, Maureen, you mentioned uh, Rich's book, which we wanna mention before we move on. Um, you have a book coming out about this. Yes. Yeah, yeah uh, it's called Where is Mark? And uh, it's, it's why we're here today. Uh, and it's not, not so much, I'm not, a, I'm not a writer, I'm not an author, but I'm very passionate about finding this 11 year old boy, you know, for his sake, for his family's sake, uh, it's just a wrong that needs to be righted. As a father, I have two children, um, as a police officer, as a community member, uh, Ron, Ron Frame, uh, Bobby D, there were searchers out there, you know, on their own time looking for Mark because it, it's just, it's the wrong thing that happened. And, uh, you know, we need to bring closure. And I'm hoping through your podcast, through, through the book and the publicity from it, that the people that know what happened come forward. Rich, thank you. Maureen, thank you. It's beautiful to see you again. I hope that the next time I see you, it'll be some good news. Yes, I hope so. Thank you so much. So now for the very latest on this investigation, we are joined by phone by Detective Marshall Craddock, who works in the Major Crimes Unit and the Cold Case Squad at the Cape May County Prosecutor's Office. So this is where Mark's case is. Detective, thank you so much for joining us. We just had Maureen and Rich on, and you know Maureen still is as hopeful as ever that maybe this will be the year that this case is solved. Can you tell us where you are in this investigation? Well, currently, we uh, every lead that comes in, uh, we we follow up. Uh, we either exhaust it, uh, eliminate it, or continue on with it. I mean, currently, that's where we're at right now. We're still following up the case, still looking into it, and still trying to uh, get rid of some of the uh, the old old leads that were that came in that uh, were never uh, eliminated. It's the con it's the constant uh, investigation that goes on forever. <laughs> It does feel that way. And, you know, it this does. is, we really hope that this is the year uh, with the anniversary coming up because detective, there were no surveillance cameras. There were no GPS on cell phones, no cell phones, all of this stuff. What do you, what do you have to rely on as far as evidence in this case? Well, actually uh, we have to rely on, on the public. Um, there, there are eyes and ears. They're the ones that saw everything. They just don't realize that possibly they actually saw something that is uh, significant. And, and that's where when your show and your podcast comes into play, uh, hopefully that'll uh, stir somebody's memory and they'll start to think about that and say, you know what, I saw something. And they may not have thought it was important, uh, but it is. It could be just the key that we need. And it's got to be scary going on 30 years now. I mean, people are starting to pass, you know? Well, that's always a, as, as, as you well know, that's always a problem with the cold case investigations. Uh, hopefully we'll uh, come to a successful conclusion uh, before that starts to happen. Uh, I do want to just talk with you briefly about Othram Labs and David Middleman, who's the CEO there. And uh, I know you all have had some preliminary conversations. What's your hope there? Uh, my hope is that uh, obviously technology moves forward and, and it gets uh, more and more sensitive and, and a lot better. Uh, I've just had the opportunity to speak with the detective from Middle Township about absolutely looking at 
everything again. And we do this periodically anyhow to see what we can uh, submit and possibly come up with a lead. Um, and, and again, as technology moves forward, so does the investigations and hopefully uh, we'll come up with something that'll be significant. Do you recall the last time anything was tested or when the FBI tested any of this? Because technology, as you say, has changed so significantly. Yeah, um, I really don't. don't want, uh, again, don't I, came in, I came in. Yeah, I came into this investigation a little bit later on, and uh, and and right now we're just going over everything, uh, just to make sure that uh, no stones not uh, unturned. Louis, do you have any questions? Yeah, Detective Craddock, is there anything specific that you'd like to share with our viewers or listeners? Any inf information you're looking for? Anything that uh, you want to make sure people know about this case that may resonate with them and 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 point help point your investigation in a certain direction? Well, that's kind of difficult, as you well know. Uh, there's certain things that obviously we cannot um, uh, let the public know. I mean, we're working on. However, uh, everybody is well aware of the area. And, and where uh, Mark was last seen. And it would be important that if you were in that area at that time, in that, during that time frame, and you saw something, uh, that if they were to uh, give us a call, and we have, a, and if they don't want to just call us directly and leave their name and all, we have anonymous numbers uh, that they can call and leave, and leave the information. And that, no matter what, that'll be followed up. I mean, and that's, that's really critical at this stage of the game. Well, we appreciate you coming on here. We know we knew from the very beginning that you weren't going to talk about any potential persons of interest or any details of the case, that those were the conditions. We understand it's an active investigation. And um, thank you so much for coming on, Detective. And we hope this is the year this gets solved. I agree. Thank, thank you very you much. Well, Lewis, while we discuss so much and there are volumes and volumes of leads, I still feel like we're back to where we started with like very little. Yeah, yeah. And you can hear in Maureen's voice and her descriptions of the day of what happened that day, her feelings, her emotion. Um, she's looks like she's reliving it when she's telling the story. It, it, it looks like it was yesterday for her. And yeah. I know it certainly feels that way, but the house remains untouched. She wants to have, which is very common in these situations, a place for Mark to come back to, to know that he's he's remembered uh, and that uh, there's somebody there, some type of history, that he won't be erased from history. Um, it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that the cold case team is looking at this and, I, and I'm glad for the detective uh, coming on. But it's amazing after 30 years they still want to keep things close to the chest that they can't put out. And it's always that struggle, which is frustrating for me, much easier from the PI side of it, right? Very difficult if you're in law enforcement to share that stuff. But at some point, you need to cross that bridge and share what you have. Maybe not yet, right? But eventually, like you said, it's been 30 years. People are passing. Memories are fading. Uh, officers have retired and through attrition the investigation has been taken over who knows how many times and usually when that happens it goes back to the crib they start from square one so I, it, it's frustrating on so many levels but it, unfortunately there's many 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 cases like this that are very very cold uh, and i think yeah as far as i'm concerned i, I said where is it boom there's there is just no such thing as a cold case only cases that need more work and people that care. And I think Mars case has that still 30 years later. 
I think so. I think there are a lot of people who really do care and we're going to try. That's why I'm going to call the call to action is I need your help. We need your help everyone, please share this case. The anniversary is coming up 30 years ago. People will remember. I remember so much as does Maureen. I know exactly where her couch is in that bay window and when you walk in the door. And and God bless her that she's still sitting there waiting, hoping that she's going to get some, some news. So we have age progression photos for you that we're sharing and all the information and links Here's the thing. If you have information, anything, whatever it is, and you may not think it's significant, but you don't know where it falls in, right? It may be significant. Contact the FBI, the New Jersey State Police, the Middle Township Police, the Cape May County Prosecutor. You don't want to talk to the cops? Call Lewis. Call Rich. Get in touch with someone who you trust. Absolutely. You have something, you tell us, and we will get it to the authorities. You know, let us not give up. Let's not give up. Let's please work together on this. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you so much for this. I want to thank everyone for, you know, taking a moment and sharing this experience with us. It's been very emotional. That's it for our episode today. Um, Lewis, where can people get in touch with you in case they have information? Please. Uh, you can find my entire social media footprint at getbitinvestigations.com. All right. Of course, you can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can watch on our YouTube channel. You can subscribe, subscribe to our newsletter. But whatever you do, please take a moment to share this case and see if we cannot help figure out what happened to Mark Heimbaugh. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime.